beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. We suffer, every one of us to varying degrees, face challenge and difficulty in our lives, and we suffer. And there are many in this world who don't understand the reasons for suffering. But the church of God, the people of God who know the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that God will use suffering with purpose. He uses suffering to transform his people into the likeness of his son. And primarily also we see in the life of Jesus that suffering was his life. Now, for those who know the Lord Jesus, those of you who claim his forgiveness and his life, what do you think of his promises? When you read the scriptures and you read the promises, what do they mean to you? How certain are they for you. The prophet Isaiah certainly was speaking to a people who were very discouraged, had witnessed the chastisements of the Lord upon themselves as a nation and as a people. They were often suffering as well. Now, as we enter into 2024 next week, I don't know about you, but I am rather confused. It's almost like in the last few years of our lives, things have been turned upside down. There are many questions, much confusion that is raised. Where, where is God in all of this? Science and technology seems to advance itself. There are many people trying to provide solutions to problems. We have lies that we are being told that get revealed sometime later. But there is a place where the church and the people of God can go, even in confusing times as this. Isaiah said in chapter 55 about the Lord, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, the Lord says, neither are my wa your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have our thoughts, don't we? We have our thoughts, if only this had happened, or if only I hadn't got this uh, uh, difficulty in my life, if only this difficulty and trial hadn't happened, then we have our solutions, we have our thoughts. But God is saying, my thoughts are higher than yours. Do you believe that? And do you believe that actually his thoughts are better than what your thoughts would be? And then he goes on to say a few verses later, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please. Even in our confusing times in which we live and whatever is going to happen in 2024, there's nothing confusing about it to our God. Everything is being performed and taking place 
according to his purpose, his will. And so tonight, what I want to do is take a a larger view of what Matthew is unfolding for us here in chapter 2. To take the larger view of what Matthew is trying to do to the Jews to whom he's writing, to, to assure the Jewish people that the one that we had long waited for, the one that you have been expecting according to promise, actually has come and his name is Jesus. And we'll see that unpacked here in this chapter as we look at it. So I want to just read four verses that remind us of what Matthew is saying as recorded in the Old Testament. We'll look at two, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, 15, 17, and 23. Verse, verse 5. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And then verse 6 is the quotation. Then verse 15, and was there in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Verse 17, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, and then the quotation in verse 18, and then verse 23, and he, Jesus, came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And so the overarching theme we see in this chapter is the God of Jesus' birth. We'll see God in His promise. Secondly, God in His providence. And third, God in His purpose. The God of Jesus' birth. Now, as you look at your Bibles, you'll you'll perhaps see italicized words in those places where I read or around the verses I have read to you tonight. These are really uh, the translator who is uh, making known to the reader of the Scriptures. These are places where Old Testament prophecies are going to be mentioned and where they're going to be uh, fulfilled here as they're coming to pass. Now, some of your Uh, Bibles also will have the red letters children and those are often referring to the words that Jesus himself spoke. But all that we see then in the scriptures is centered around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everything that we see contained in the scriptures ultimately we'll be able to find pointing back or pointing forward to him. And if there's something in the New Testament that is prophesied or was spoken about Jesus before, we say that was a promise or a prophecy that was given in the Old Testament that pointed to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some people who have tried to trace out all these promises in the Old Testament in particular, and they've come up with a list of probably around 300 or more promises in the Old Testament of our Lord Jesus that actually were fulfilled in due time. And it's to remind us, as Paul says to the Corinthians, that the promises of God are in Him, Jesus, yea and amen, to the glory of God. 
And so when we consider this chapter 2 of Matthew, Matthew wants to remind us of who it is that God had promised. I want you to think about for a moment, boys and girls as well, what were some of the promises that God gave in the Old Testament that point us to the fulfillment of this very time in which we're remembering in this season of Christmas that Jesus came in the fullness of time to be born in Bethlehem? Well, we can go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis 3. Immediately after the fall, we have our God walking in the cool of the day to find his children who had fallen and sinned against him, Adam and Eve. And even though God there is questioning Adam and then he questions Eve, it's when he turns to the serpent, when he turns to the devil, and he pronounces a curse, really, that we see the seed of the promise of the coming of the seed of the woman. There, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. When you read all of Scripture, when you read your newspaper today, and as long as our Lord tarries, and you look at all the events of the world, it's really contained in this one word. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There is a battle, a cosmic battle, if you will, that's taking place and continues till this day. It's, it's a battle that's already won if you read the book of Revelation, but it's a battle in which our Lord Jesus Christ is reigning supreme. And in this mother promise, if you will, of Genesis 3.15, the fulfillment of that promise is taking place even till today. Now Eve and Adam, after they were removed from the garden, had a child. And children, you'll notice that as soon as this child is given, it's, it's as if Adam and Eve latch upon this promise of God. They expected what God said will happen. And so they name the first child. And yet as they have children, how disappointing this child was. Cain killed his brother Abel. They had expected a man-child from the Lord. This is the one to bring deliverance. How disappointing. And yet we read, another son was given. And again, Eve is giving the name Seth. This will be the seed appointed in the stead instead of Abel. And then we read in, in the Scriptures, and in those days, man began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the next major event that we read in the Scriptures, as you follow this promise, this fulfillment of God's purpose in the world, is the flood. After the reproduction of man and the filling of the earth, man became so wicked that God determined to send a flood and destroy all the earth. 
except, of course, for Noah and his family. And after they are saved in the ark and all the world is destroyed, God comes again with promise. And he says to Noah and his family, I will not again curse the ground anymore while the earth remains. Sea time and harvest, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And he confirmed this word of his promise with an oath. And we see that till today. Every time, children, you go outside and it's been a rainstorm and, and the sun is shining and the rain is in the background and you see this beautiful rainbow. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness, his promise, his covenant. And it's Noah now who pronounces his son, Shem, to be blessed and Canaan to be his servant. Noah says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. From Shem shall come the deliverer, the seed. So all the people of God, as we read the Old Testament, have their eyes upon the promise. Have their eyes upon what God is going to do to send this deliverer. Where are our eyes today in this confusing time? When the world seems upside down. The promise is sure. He's coming again. And God's word, as we'll see in this chapter, shall certainly be fulfilled. After the flood, we even have the sons of Shem who who don't uh, follow in their father's faith and footsteps. Instead, what do we find the children of Shem doing? They begin to build this long, big, tall tower of Babel. And God, because of it, causes a confusion of the language and they are dispersed throughout the land as he had called them to do. But God keeps his promise. The next revelation of God's promise comes when we hear that God found one that he chose in a land of idolatry. Who was it? Abram. He was an idolater, as his fathers were. And yet God sovereignly calls this man Abram from his pagan worship. And Abram believes God's word. And then we begin to see God's promises narrowed in its focus on this man, on this nation, the children of Israel. And God will bless them in Abraham. He says, all those who curse him will be cursed and those who bless him will be blessed. God said, you will be a father of many nations. And I will make the exceeding fruitful. I will... Make a nation of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee and their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God to thee and to thy seed after thee. Seed. A promise to Abraham. It was coming. This is the God of Jesus' birth. From Abraham, we turn to Isaac. Abraham thought he would bring about the promise himself, you remember, in Hagar, but God says, no, in, in Isaac will be your seed. The seed of the promise. 
From Isaac, we turn to Jacob. Then we have from the womb of Rebekah, his wife. In the womb are these twins who are struggling in battle, Esau and Jacob. Two nations are said to be in her womb, and the elder is going to serve the younger. And then we see Jacob fleeing for his life. And when he's fleeing for his life from his brother who he had deceived, and he rests upon this pillow, what is the promise God gives to him? That God would be with him and in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's still this continuation of this promise of God. And from Jacob we have 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And God doesn't leave us guessing as to which tribe is going to bring forth the promised seed. Now, if I were to ask you, if you didn't know the history of the Bible and you heard about each of the 12 sons of Jacob, who would you choose to be the one to be the line of Jesus? Who is the most upstanding uh, son of Jacob? Well, certainly Joseph, it seems. Did his father's will, he, he was kind, he was gentle. He was a ruler. But God chose Judah, the one who had sinned with the harlot. And at Jacob's death, he he speaks about the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. He's looking. He's still anticipating. He's still seeing God's promised seed. It's on its way. It's coming. And for a time in that period of history of Israel and of the world, it seems as if God was silent. But again, God was faithful. Samuel Lamenting Saul, who had become king, God comes to Samuel and he says to him, go, go to Jesse and anoint among his sons one to be king, a Bethlehemite. And you know the history. You heard it this morning to some degree. Who, who is this lineage? Rahab, the harlot. When they came into the land of Canaan, you have Ruth, the Moabitess, who became the wife of Boaz. And now God in David is going to give his promise to be fulfilled. Isaiah says in chapter 11, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. In David, the man after God's own heart, was this promise given. It wasn't to be David. You saw this morning, it wasn't to be Nathan. It was going to be the result of actually an adulterous affair. That Bathsheba will bring forth Solomon. 
And Isaiah says in chapter 9, For unto us a child is given, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of his increase of the government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and on his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God did not leave in the Old Testament as you follow these unfolding promises without a question. There would be only one who could fit this description as we find in the promises that he had given. He will even use, as you saw this morning, the sinfulness of the lives of his people to bring to pass his promises. And I've only touched upon some of the promises which the Lord had made regarding this fulfillment of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told by the prophet Malachi that the Messiah would indeed be a, a forerunner coming before him. John the Baptist, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come. The Old Testament saints, at least some of them, were longing and anticipating as they ministered in the house of God for Jesus to come. Are we anticipating as we come into tomorrow, as we enter a new year, that the promise of God is so certain, so sure, it will come to pass. Not, not just simply that Jesus has come, all the promises are fulfilled, but that the promise He has given to His people and His church shall not fail. Dear believer, the promises He has given to you shall not falter. Well, this brings us then to the second thing I want to consider, particularly from chapter 2 here, as the amazing providence of God unfolds the various promises then, some of them we've seen and others that Matthew will add, that actually are fulfilled at the time of Jesus' birth. The first promise in Matthew 2 has to do with the place where Jesus was going to be born. Now, you know, boys and girls, that Mary was in Galilee, in Nazareth. And it seems that Joseph was from there too. But in Luke 2, we're going to read that Jesus is born actually in Bethlehem. And it's foretold here in, in chapter 2 of Matthew as well. What are we going to see? Joseph and Mary, a poor carpenter and a, and a maid... How are they going to travel this distance to, to another place? It was several miles away. At the time of her birth. To actually fulfill this word of promise. 
Now we read that at the time of Joseph and Mary, Rome was the ruling power. Rome was the capital of the then known world. And in the palace of this king, there was going forth a decree. It must take time for this decree even to go forth that every person in the known empire were going to be taxed and they had to go back to their homeland, the place where they were born. The king wanted every one of his subjects to return to the land of their birth and be registered and pay tribute. Perhaps... We can ask the question, well, why would the king ever do this? Well, it may be that he wanted everyone in his kingdom to be known and to be numbered and how big his kingdom was and where everyone was from. The king had no idea he was fulfilling God's will. This purpose of the promise of God from eternity and then revealed in time in the Old Testament, and now fulfilled when Joseph and Mary are going about their way as a couple waiting for the time of the birth of their first child, and then suddenly the decree of the king, you must go back to the place you were born. Without this decree, where would Jesus have been born? I, I doubt whether Joseph, I suppose an angel could have come and told Joseph, you must travel. Uh, when, when the time of Mary is due, you must travel to Bethlehem. God could have done that. But God's providence and his promises are far beyond our understanding. Far beyond our grasp. He is bringing to pass all the counsels of his will. His thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. And by this one decree of the king, he is accomplishing all of his purpose. But in particular, it is the eye that he has upon Mary. And in her womb, his son. Who will be brought to the place he had foretold and promised he would be born. The decree of Caesar Augustus was at the precise time that it was needed. That the whole world was going to be put in motion to accomplish the fulfillment of this promise of moving Joseph and Mary several miles from where they lived to Bethlehem. Think about that. The whole world was put into motion to accomplish this promise. Do you imagine that God is not putting the whole world into motion to accomplish his purpose in his providence in the lives of his people? Dear church, if you think back in your own life to the providences and the promises of God, how hasn't he marvelously brought these together to bring you to the place where you are today? This is the God of Jesus, his son, 
God had promised many years before that the Messiah was going to be born in this place. So God places in the mind of this king to issue a decree of taxing of all the people. And in doing so, Joseph and Mary would take this trip to Bethlehem. Oh, there's such comfort in this knowledge for us that even today God holds the reins of the rulers, the princes, and the presidents of our whole world in his fatherly hand. There is no power, there is no authority in all of this whole created world that is outside of the ruling and dominion and fulfilling of God's promises as we see evident here in this passage before us tonight. Imagine as well that Joseph and Mary maybe were told by an angel to go to Bethlehem and Jesus needs to be born there. Well, in all likelihood, they would have come to the inn and found room. It was because of the taxation and all the people going to Bethlehem that the room of the inn was, was filled as well. And so in God's marvelous providence, where is Jesus to be born? In this lowly stable. Where would the shepherds find him? There in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. What does it teach us? Jesus, God's own Son, who He will bring to pass according to providence and promise, is the lowly one, the meek one, the gentle one. You will find Him there, the angel said, in the manger. The Son of God. The one who was promised. When you think of this decree that had gone forth, it was the fulfillment of God's promises. Do you not think then that God has in control all the providences of your life? The suffering, the trials, the difficulty that you face today. Is it not in the Father's hands? And think for a moment. Here, here the wise men come before the king, Herod. And they say, we're seeking the place where the king of the Jews is to be born. And it's within a few minutes, it seems to me, that the scribes and the Pharisees are able to answer the question. In Bethlehem, it's, it's quoted here in verse 6, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. They knew it right off the tip of their fingers from their Old Testament Bibles, the promise that was to take place. But what's amazing to me is though it was only a few miles travel, the scribes and the religious leaders and the religious people never went. Never investigated whether it be true. 
And when you hear of all these promises of God, my unbelieving friend who may be here tonight, you hear of all these great and glorious promises of God to poor sinners. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast them out. Have you tested his word of promise? Do you believe what the Lord has said? It's a testimony here of Matthew to the people who will read this gospel, this good tidings, this good news. Look at what God did. He promised, he fulfilled in his providence. He did what he said he was going to do. And then what happened? Well, Herod was a very wicked man, a a cruel man. Actually, he ended up killing his wife and his own sons because he was suspicious of, of them trying to take over his throne. And so when he heard on this occasion that there was one born, a baby, who was supposed to be king, he, he becomes very suspicious that this one will eventually rise up and overtake him. And, and so what does he do? This king, Herod, we read, he sends out his soldiers to kill all those who were two years and under. And when you read Revelation, you read of this dragon out of his mouth flowing this river, if you will, to to destroy the woman and her seed. It is the picture, too, of what's happening here in Matthew chapter 2. But God is protecting his child. The very practical way you read here is what follows in verse 13. When these wise men were departed, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Why to Egypt? Wouldn't it be just as good for Joseph and Mary to not go 170-some miles to Egypt? Maybe just go to the east? Maybe just go to the hill country and hide away for a while? Why to Egypt? Mary would have to travel so far with the young baby? Well, Matthew tells us there's more to this story than simply they had to flee from Herod. Read. He went there to fulfill what was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, verse 15, out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, if you're a Bible student and you go to uh, the prophecy and, and you read there what was written, it's, it's, it's referring primarily to uh, the children of Israel, the people of God, His son, Israel, was going to be called out of Egypt. They were called out of Egypt in the time of Joseph and Pharaoh when they were in bondage 400 years. God brought them out with a mighty hand and a stretched out arm after the plagues. And he brought them to the promised land. This is really what Hosea is referring to. God called his son out of Egypt because of the great love he had for him. But in essence, what is pictured here is centered in God's Son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it is Christ, the real Son, the firstborn Son. Children, when you think of Israel, God came down, called Moses to bring the children of Israel out. How did they come out? Oh, I suppose the first few days it was with rejoicing. They had all the gold and silver of the Egyptians. Everything seemed to be going well until they came to the Red Sea and the Egyptians were behind them and they complained and then they get across the Red Sea and then they begin complaining again because they didn't have enough to eat and they complain again because they didn't have enough to drink. What a complaining people. Yet Jesus, the Son of God, who was called out of Egypt, doesn't have one complaint in his lips. Jesus, we read in Hebrews, learned obedience by the things he suffered. Even as a little child, as a little baby, all around him is death. Herod killing all the children, needing to go in a midnight journey, if you will, in a day's, couple days journey into Egypt to escape and then come back again at the appointed time. This was suffering for little Jesus. We can't even imagine the horror that took place in Israel when Jesus was taken away to Egypt. We read here that King Herod indeed went and destroyed those two years old and under. It's a fulfillment, Matthew says, of Jeremiah the prophet. In Ramah was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Do you remember the first time that Bethlehem is mentioned in the Bible? a place of sorrow even though it is a house of bread it's when Jacob buried Rachel after she had died how did she die remember when Rachel was giving birth to her last son she was dying this favored wife of Jacob bringing forth this son in sorrow. The whole life, it seems, of Rachel was sorrow. And, and she called this name, you remember, Benoni. It means son of my sorrows. But Jacob, knowing the promise of God, says his name will not be Benoni but Benjamin, son of my right hand. And he erects a pillar at the place where he buried his wife, Rachel. Now, now in light of this, here at Benjamin, where the son of God's right hand is born, it's a place of sorrows. It's a place now where Herod comes and kills all these little children of the covenant. 
It's a place of sorrow, Benoni. And yet, at the same time, it is a place where we may say with Matthew's insight, it is a place of Benjamin, a son of God's right hand, who, though he too would suffer, he had to flee away, or he would have been put to death. He had to flee to Egypt, but God will call his son out of Egypt and set him up as the son of his right hand. And so Matthew here quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. And this prophecy was written when all Israel had been taken into Babylon. There's more behind this story. And they gathered the, 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 the country of Babylon, gathered the captivity in the Babylonian captivity. They gathered the northern tribes and the southern tribes here and this place five miles outside in the hill country of Bethlehem and escorted them off into Babylon. It was a place of sorrow. But it was the place our Lord was born. The Son of God's right hand. And the fulfillment of these promises, and through it He would go to Egypt and return again to Israel. Now there's one more profound promise found in this chapter. It's at the very end. It's perhaps not italicized in your Bible because it's, it's not a direct quotation from an Old Testament prophet. You'll see something that Matthew does each time he's quoting. He says, as the prophet said, as the prophet said. But when we get to this last promise, if you notice in your Bibles, in verse 23, he says, and it came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, maybe this week it'd be a task for you if you would go home and try to find for me exactly where this is found in the Old Testament. Where does God actually say, my son will be called a Nazarene? You'll look in vain because it's not actually a quotation directly. But what does it mean? When you think of this place where Jesus grew up, where did Jesus spend most of his life? In Nazareth. That's where his parents were from. But what's the significance? Well, you remember one of the disciples who hadn't yet come to Jesus, his brother came to him and he says, we have found the Messiah. Philip says to Nathaniel, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see, at that time, if you wanted to be of a lower part of society, if you, you were a part of a, a sort of outcast kind of people, it would have been if you were from Nazareth. These people of Nazareth were despised people. It was a despised place. It was Nazareth of Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. The scribes and Pharisees looked down on this place, considered it to be a bunch of ignorant men. And so what is Matthew telling us here? He's seen the whole life of Jesus, and now he's reflecting back and he's writing. This is Jesus the Nazarene. 
He has seen already all that will take place. This is the man. As you see him hanging on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth. The king. Again, Matthew is reminding us of who he is. How low he was willing to come. To come from Nazareth. To place his parents were from. To place he grew up. Yes, God brought him to Bethlehem to be born at the appointed time. Brought him to Egypt to be called out of Egypt. But then he grew up in Nazareth. He will be called a Nazarene. The marvelous providence of God fulfilling his promises. When he comes, we won't esteem him highly. He was a Nazarene, a despised one. We esteemed him not. But he is the man of God's right hand. The true Benjaminite. This is the friend of sinners. This is the one God in fulfillment of His eternal purposes, His eternal promise, His eternal providence that we're going to remember tomorrow. God brought it to pass. Jesus, His Son, is born. But He does this with a purpose. He does this with a purpose. And that's the last thing I want to consider with you. We are told in the book of Hebrews, Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. As we looked at these promises, no doubt you must have seen, all the steps along the way were filled with suffering and difficulty. And even as you find in Jesus' life, toward the end, and especially in his crucifixion, his whole life was filled with suffering. And yet God fulfills His promises even in this way. And He learned obedience through it. And so I ask you, if those who are called by Jesus' name, Christians, who are followers or disciples of Jesus, who have come to believe in Jesus, who trust in Him, who come to repentance and faith in Him, the Father has His eyes upon them, for they are in Christ, how will He lead them? He will lead them in the way He led His Son. His promises are sure, certain, steadfast, unmovable. They'll come to pass. He who has called you, He will bring you to glory. But His providence may lead you in a way you don't understand. In a way that are not according to your thoughts. In a way of suffering. In a way of difficulty. If in this way, according to the book of Hebrews, God disciplined His Son, if you will, will He not discipline all those who also follow Him? If God is going to move heaven and earth to bring about Joseph and Mary moving five miles away for an evening and a night at the moment, a precise time that his son is going to be born to fulfill his word, is he not going to do the same to fulfill his promise in us?
in you? Christ was sent of the Father into this valley of tears so that he would be the Son exactly ordained of God from the foundation of the world to be the Savior, the meek and lowly one. That whoever hears of him, hears of this gospel tiding of such a lowly, meek one, can come to him and find life. The Father will call them to a life of following him, trusting him. It means to confess him. It means when we face ridicule and suffering and persecution, it should unmove us. It unmoved, it didn't move Jesus. He trusted. He believed his Father, his word, his promise, his providence. And Christ, who was sent to this world, did exactly what his Father called him to do. And he calls now out a people to follow him, to obey him, to walk in his footsteps. Because those who follow in his footsteps are also called from all eternity, founded in Christ, in the love of God, and they will be led in a path similar to his Son, not to earn salvation, not to merit salvation, but we learn obedience through the things we suffer. He wants to captivate our hearts that we will follow Him, trust Him, even when it is painful and it hurts. There are various ways in which we suffer in this world. Each of you have experienced them. If you haven't, you will. Where do we turn in our suffering? Where do we turn in our difficulty? Where do we turn in cross-providences? We don't understand the confusion of our life. Matthew is directing us. Trust his promise. Trust his providence. He has a purpose. He will accomplish <coughs> that purpose. in every one of his children. Each and every trial, dear believer, the harsh words that are spoken against you, the difficulties that you may experience in life is ordained by the same heavenly Father that brought Jesus through these various promises and providences we have looked at. And he's bringing you according to his promises by the way of his providence to the very purpose of transforming you into the likeness of his son. The loving father cares for you, loves you as he loved his son. And if we can grasp this and understand this, and believe this. 
then the troubles and afflictions and trials and temptations fade. And we begin to understand His purpose in our lives. Every disappointment, every loneliness, every breakup in relationship, the Father is not designed and permitted to come upon you to destroy you, but to transform you. It also means that if we do not know Christ, and we have not come to Christ by faith, then the suffering that you endure, that you face, that's out before us in the world. Meaningless. Pointless. This too shall pass. But in Christ, being found in Him, being part of His body, God is looking upon us as he looked upon his son and will fulfill his purposes. As you think about tomorrow, as you think about Christmas, a reminder of this glorious event that we have been commemorating also tonight, you'll begin to see, I trust, how God in his marvelous way has led you. It may have been a way that has been down but he's going to bring you to a place unto himself. For Jesus, it was the way of the cross that led to the crown. So be of good courage. The same one who made these promises about his son and carried them out in his marvelous prom- providence is the same one who leads you and guides you in his providence today. Jesus took the cup and he drank it to its bitter dregs for the purpose of paying the price we couldn't pay. And you know what he said to his disciples? You too shall drink the cup, but not like I drink it. We will suffer. We will face difficulty. But through it, his promise and his providence for the purpose of our transformation is what he has in mind. J.C. Ryle says this, Let us rest our souls on the thought that our times are in God's hands. He knows the best season for sending help to his church and new light to the world. Let us beware of giving way to over-anxiety about the course of events around us, as if we knew better than the King of Kings when relief should come. Here is Jesus, presented on the pages of the Gospel in all of its glory. He's gone the way before us. And when we follow Him, we may be assured He will be with us. He will strengthen us. He will help us. And so Christ, He knows your trouble. He knows your suffering. He is a friend to whom you can go that will never be turned away. He sticks closer than a brother 
Dear friend, dear believer, there's coming a day in which when we leave this world, we'll be able to write a history like this one. And we'll be able to see the promises of God. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And we'll see this promise and that providence and this promise and that providence as a seamless whole of the Father's handiwork as he called us out of darkness, out of Egypt, to his marvelous light, and he transformed us just as he did in the same way as his son. And so when your life seems to contradict the promise, just as they perhaps did in the life of Jesus, as you read this history, what's going to be the end? How is this going to happen? What's going to be the end of Jesus? Even though he went the way of the cross and he died, he entered the grave and rose again and sits in glory. Dear believer, the day is coming when you too shall be raised up to heavenly places to be with Christ, the one who was born in Bethlehem. This is the God of Jesus' birth. Is he your God? Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God, we have seen thy hand. We have seen thy promise, your providence, and thy purpose. We pray that we might discern it also in our own lives for our comfort, for our encouragement, for our strengthening. That thou wilt be faithful to thy own word. Lord, bring us to this place of worship as we commemorate thy birth. And as we enter into this last week of this year and into a new, may we hold these things to be true and rest upon them with assurance and confidence that no matter what happens in this world, that thy word and promise is unshakable and sure and shall come to pass. Remember those, Lord, who, like the scribes and Pharisees, can reiterate all these promises and speak of them without experience and knowledge. Open eyes unstop ears that don't hear to hear these tidings of the coming of the true Benjamin, the son of thy right hand. We ask this in Jesus' name.